The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. So, thank you for coming. <laughs> Let's start with the with meditation and then we can enter into the fourth noble truth. So, find any comfortable seat. Just maybe bring a little bit of movement. Just let your body tell you what it needs to do. Hmm. Closing the eyes and maybe taking a couple of deep breaths. Let's start by softening the body some. Just transitioning from the day, the drive, (laughs) and all the expectations from the upcoming holidays. Just maybe invite ourselves to to be here and start by noticing your contact with the floor the contact of the body with the chair or the cushion And arriving. Right now, there's nothing to do, nothing to fix, nothing to change. Find a posture that allows you to be alert and yet with a soft body, with a soft mind. Bringing the attention to the head. Noticing the weight of the head on the neck and the shoulders. Making any adjustment. Noticing the muscles of the face, softening the eyebrow, 
around the eyes and the mouth, the lips, the jaw. This is not a a chore. There's nothing to do here. So just inviting the body, the face, the head to, to soften. Allowing the shoulders to get away from the ears. Noticing the weight of the arms. And releasing the holding in the shoulders, the upper back. Softening the hands. Noticing sensations in the hands. Pulsing temperature vibration appreciating the the richness of the sensations perhaps this is the first time in the day that We pay attention to the sensations in the hands. Shifting the attention to the torso. Perhaps the breathing becomes more obvious. The expansion with the inhale and the softening with the exhale.
may be possible to soften the muscles of the rib cage and and the belly. Sensing the breathing. Now going to the hips. Notice any holding or tension, tightness. The upper legs, the legs. As if ready to start walking or running. And softening. Feeling the body here. Noticing the space that it takes, the weight, the softness, the solidity. The achiness, the energy, is it low, is it high? Is it cool or warm?
arriving completely. The situations that happen during the day are still in the body. Tensions, tightness, softness. Acknowledging any emotion the thoughts the echoes of the day.
let's honor the day. Take responsibility, ownership for the pleasant or the unpleasant that we put out in the world. For ourselves, for others. Don't let it be a blur another day. Perhaps we can let it be a teacher.
So, um, this is the last class of the of the series of the Four Noble Truths. Um, we have thought initially of offering a f- fifth class, but with the holidays and everything, I think it's, it's a wise decision <laughs> just to to finish here and and give ourselves a break and spend some time with family in a more relaxed way. So we went through the first three noble truths. So the first one uh, there's suffering, dukkha. Our lives are difficult. Our bodies, our relationships are always changing. We always kind of accommodating, recalculating. The second uh, truth is, I really like the way Sylvia Burstein uh, teaches it. Is uh, the cause of the cause of the suffering is the how the mind struggles in response to challenge. Like we don't like it, <laughs> we want it to be different, and a lot of that has to do with. Uh, uh, what in Pali, the word is tanha, there's thirst, these hungers, these desires, uh, that we, we cling so deeply to, to so many things. And we always think that we're going to, we'll, we'll be happy if I can have that or be that or not be that. And this thirst is, is always changing is uh, impossible to satisfy and the third noble truth from last week is uh, is to know that the end of suffering is possible that there's a way in which we can have a mind that is at ease, peaceful there, there's a way that we can learn to manage. There's no, um, it's not a pill, it's not instantaneous, it takes a lot of work, but uh, it's possible. And then the fourth noble truth is kind of the, the medicine, the, what is it that I need to do to, to end dukkha? Uh, so, the, the way of doing it is uh, the Eightfold Path. So before we go into what exactly is that, it's, it's worth considering that um, everything that we do, the way we live, what we say, everything impacts our mind, impacts our thoughts, our emotions, our feelings. And at the same time, that that we think, that we feel, is going to impact our acts, what we do, the way we live. 
So it creates kind of, of this loop. And then we kind of have a, a choice. Do we want to go in automatic pilot, allowing all these habits and learned patterns, learn from the way we were thought, we were educated, the society in which we live, the community, uh, our biology to drive that, or where, where is the choice then? And I think that's what the, what the Buddha gave us in the Eightfold Path. So there are <clears throat> eight, eight factors. Um, and it's, it's not, again, it's not a recipe. It's not a sequence. You do one, the next, and the other. Usually the Eightfold Path is pictured as, as a wheel with eight spikes. And these factors support each other. It's more like a fabric. Um, and they address different aspects of how we act, how we live. And in a way, it's giving us the tools to, to break that loop, to, to find the choice, to find another way of doing. Um, this path is not asking us to, for self-mortification, like in, in the, um, the times of, of the Buddha, the ascetics that won't eat, won't sleep, I mean, like mortificating the, the body and the mind. And it's not all the other extreme self-indulgence. The Eightfold Path is kind of the middle way. And a lot of the teachings uh, from the Buddha invite us to find that middle ground. So with the um, Eightfold Path, the invitation is to cultivate, to be skillful, basically. Um, there's... Skillfulness in our understanding, in our thinking, in the way we communicate, in our actions, what we do for living, um, the effort we make with this practice, the effort we put into this in mindfulness and, and concentration. Concentration not as a focus, like laser focus, but kind of the concentration, like a gathering of the mind, how not to have a fragmented mind, a scattered mind. Usually the, uh, <clears throat> the adjective that is given to each of these factors is the right. So right understanding, right view. Uh, but it's not right as correct, but it's kind of the right for the right tool for the task. Um, I, my personal preference is to call it wise. Uh, it could also be said skillful, skillful view, skillful understanding. So I'm going to go through the eight factors again. Wise view or understanding, right intention or thinking, 
write speech or communication. Nowadays, so many ways to, to talk to others. Right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration as the unification of the mind. What is, I think that the studying, uh, investigating, applying, reflect, reflections on the Eightfold Path, it's a, a life work, it's a life task, basically, life path. Um, it's very complex, and I think I think I've done the Eightfold Path several times, and every time, like, oh, I hadn't seen this before. Like, there's so much that there's always something that comes on you. Or the thing that is quite important to me, at least, and I think for many people, is it depends where you are in your life. What are your circumstances? Where are you today? All these factors have something for you. And some days you take something that works for you. Some days you leave it aside. Some years you, you go this way, you deepen certain things. Like it, it, it's always evolving, it's always changing. It's this, yeah. Again, it's not something that happens instantaneously, it's, it's a very gradual way of doing things. I think nowadays we're so used to instantaneous gratification with our electronics. Uh, undo, <laughs> repeat. And I think with the Eightfold Path, with the teachings in general, it, it takes time. It takes effort. It, it really takes a lot of it. But at the same time, the moment we start like understanding the teachings and applying them and seeing how they're helpful for us, we start seeing change. And it's almost like immediately subtle change. I feel sometimes that subtle change, I'm very grateful for subtle change. Like the day, a day goes by and, and at the end of the day, I don't know, a little more ease, a little more satisfaction. It's not a huge happiness or something like that. It's very gentle. It's very gentle and quite satisfying and supportive. Um, when with the practice and with reflection and going back to the teachings and, and seeing what it means in our life, it kind of becomes a way of life. It's not, it's kind of our default thought. It stops, we kind of way kind of start putting uh, our, our foot on the brake on the automatic pilot. And it starts becoming an, an option that comes naturally. And it's, 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 it's very, very helpful. So, how are we going to embark in the Eightfold Path? It is said that the, um, that the Buddha 
didn't start his teaching going through all these aspects of the Eightfold Path. It might be too much. And again, it's a gradual process. So he often provides uh, preliminaries, like the intro, one-on-one for the Eightfold Path before diving in deeply. And for the Eightfold Path, he gave us three, three starting points. Giving or generosity, morality, and metta, that is usually translated as loving kindness or true friendship. So those three, giving, morality, and metta, are relational. I mean, we can apply to ourselves, but those three aspects happen in community with others. Um, and that's to say that we may practice by ourselves, we sit alone in meditation, but what we do with this path impacts everything around us, our relationships, even impacts our um, encounters on the street, people that we're maybe only going to see for a few seconds. It, it has consequences. So I'm going to start with giving. So, so what about giving? Like, why why is that important? So if we think about it, if we want to be generous, if we want to give, we need to get out of ourselves. Like, we need to stop being so self-centered because we need to figure out what is it that is needed. So in a way is, okay, I'm, I'm getting out of my, <laughs> me, myself, and mine, and I'm going to see what's happening in the world around me. So that kind of, that empathy, that, that, huh, what is it that I can do today? And it could be something quite simple. It's, it doesn't need to be the huge thing. Uh, like, I don't know, cooking for the family, doing the dishes, having a door open for somebody, feeding our pets. <laughs> like, there's, we, we, we're giving. We're giving material, we're giving time. We're definitely kind of attuning to what's happening around ourselves, getting out of, I'm doing everything for myself. We, we, we tend to live a lot in, my <laughs> here uh, working or whatever is always a lot of uh, self-centeredness. And the other thing is what we give. When we give is it's an act of letting go. We're releasing something. We kind of this is no longer mine, my time. Uh, the money that you donate, uh, the favor that you do for somebody, that's that you're giving it away, you're letting it go. And we talk a lot of about letting go, let it be when, with, this, with these teachings. Important to know that giving or generosity is not a transaction. 
true generosity, true giving, um, is, is an expecting. It's not an exchange. It just happens to give it almost from the heart. As mundane as it can be, but you just give it. It's not something that is imposed. And again, it's not a transaction. Now, the second one, morality, ethical conduct. Um, So basically, it's not about commandments. You you won't do this, you won't do that. It's it's something, in a way, for me, more accessible. It's basically having the intention of not bringing harm to others. Don't, don't bring in harm, more harm into the world. If you cannot bring something nice, at least don't harm. And when when that happens, it's kind of born from the care that we have for others. So once again, it takes us out of the self-centeredness. It's not about me. Um, and it, it's another kind of giving, because we give uh, safety. We give non-harm. The, um, the three main categories of morality is... Uh, we don't lie, so when you, when we don't lie, others around us can trust us. They feel at ease with us. They know they're they're safe with us. We are reliable. I think we we're missing so much that sense of safety of trust nowadays. When our sexual activity is appropriate, others feel respected. They feel safe with us. I think all these things are also have a factor of reciprocity. So what the safety that we give to others, the non-harm, that giving is also received in return. In, in general. <laughs> and then when we refrain from intoxicants, whatever they are, um, we protect others and definitely we protect ourselves. It's not a matter, the, the word in Pali is sila for Um, ethical conduct. It's not a matter of putting um, our well-being in the back burner. It's a matter of putting, like, in a balance our well... I mean, the well-being of others and our desires, um, our impulses. We we have them. It's, It's part of our nature, isn't it? But it's not a matter of that 
we're going to sacrifice for others. No, it's a matter of seeing things a little bit in balance. So don't lie. The sexual conduct and refrain from intoxicants tend to be the three main uh, things here. I think what, what is comes to mind thinking about cultivating ethical conduct is we need to know our minds, know our bodies, like do that internal work, look inside us, like get to know ourselves, get to know how is it that I, this being functions, this system works. When we do that, we're able then to externally offer safety and do non-harm. And the last one, the third one is metta, uh, loving kindness, true friendship, friendliness. Um, in, in some of the teachings, the, the Buddha says to begin the path by reflecting on the heavens. So, what's that that mean? Um, may sound a little, hmm, I don't get it. <laughs> um, I think what this means is, is to get out of our little sphere. <laughs> get out of your head. Uh, again, self-centeredness comes again. Let's get out of there and, I don't know. And I think something about meta is that ability to discover the goodness that is in ourselves and be able to offer it to others. And with, with that kindness, with that, um, yeah, with that meta, other things follow. Compassion, being able to be happy for the happiness of others, equanimity. Um, they, they're called the um, divine abidings. And if we think about it, um, if our life is full of goodwill, of care, I, it, it feels pretty good. I mean, we can think of circumstances in our lives where if, if there's kind of um, stress or aversion or conflict versus situations where there's, I don't know, goodness, goodwill. Doesn't need to be perfect, but definitely it makes a, a dramatic difference. So in a way, it's, it's uh, that bringing that meta that loving kindness allow us to start opening a way of getting away from the hungers, from the thirst, from the grasping and not, not letting it go. So I would like to invite you to do a little bit of a, an exercise on metta. Just to, because we can talk as much as we want. <laughs> we can read as much as we want, but if we don't feel it, if we don't make the effort to mm, 
make it a personal experience, a first-hand experience, is, is not very helpful. So I invite you maybe to close your eyes and take a couple of deep breaths. Hmm. And um, bring to mind someone you love. Someone that is easy to love. (laughs) Someone for whom you care, you love deeply. And imagine that you have a kind of magic wand that makes everything possible. And with this, waving this magic wand, wish these beings everything that is good May you be well. May you be at ease. May you be happy. And offer this being wherever is in your heart. Notice your thoughts your emotions, how does it feel in the body to to wish them well? Is it pleasant or unpleasant or you feel calm or agitation? Does the mind feel contracted or expanded? Considering that 
It's going to be very hard to do groups today. <laughs> I'm going to invite you to do another reflection. <sighs> As I was saying um, at the beginning, like every action we do is preceded by something in the mind. And it's the same for an act of generosity. So what I'm going to invite you to do is um, trying to become familiar with what happens in the mind when, what is the movement of the mind when prior to generosity, prior to giving. So maybe think about something recent, an act of giving, in any kind of act. Could be making a meal or making a donation. Anything that is fresh, maybe, in your mind. And think about it for a moment. The gift of time, the gift of listening and I'll invite you to think back at the moment that this act first sparked in your mind that the intention to give appeared and we we don't think too much about those things like what what makes you what makes you take the decision to go and make a meal for somebody or hold the door for somebody just see if you can of something in particular think back at when was the first movement in your mind to to give and um, if possible how how does that feel in the body if you can remember how does it feel in the mind are there emotions present and even now after the fact how how does it feel not to the act of giving in itself but before it happened and I'm going to stop the recording now so we can have a little bit of a conversation about that